This morning we'll be reading from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And I forgot to bring my large print Bible, so if I stumble, give me some grace here. <laughs> well, these words are small. <laughs> Starting in verse 1, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's pray. Father God, here we are 20 years after the day of 9-11, and I remember that day, Lord, we were a nation in shock. We were a nation in fear, but we were a nation united. <clears throat> we were a nation pledged to one another to, uh, to support the freedoms that you've given us and the life that you've provided for us. And, and Lord, here we are today, 20 years later, and we are more fractured and broken than we've ever been. And I pray, God, that you would just pour your spirit out on us, that we would be people of love, that your word could go out into this country, that your light could shine, and that we would be once again a nation together. I know that that can't happen without you. I know that that can't happen without the church being the love of God and showing the love and the light of Christ. So Lord, help us today as we go through this passage to understand what you're teaching. Be with Jackie as he gives the word. And we just thank you, Lord, and desire to glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. has made. <clears throat> Let us be glad and rejoice in it. Oh, look what I found. <clears throat> you never know what you're going to find around here. All right, we're doing a journey through 1 John. And as we do, we want to remind ourselves, what is this all about? 
So when we look at the overarching theme of the book, it is this, the way to life, in fact, we end on it in verse 12 today, the, the sum of all the parts of finding life is in Christ. He is the word of life, we're told in chapter 1. He is eternal life, we're told in chapter 5. He is the, the goal, the point. He's the one who makes everything else that we're going to talk about possible. But remember, in 1 John chapter 1, he told us we have a problem. Our problem is sin. And he tells us what to do about that problem, doesn't he? He says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Well, how many times? You sure? All the time. The Lord, and then what is it that he asks us? It's, it's so amazing to me, this, this prayer. The Bible calls it the Lord's Prayer, but it's a disciple's prayer. Remember the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray, you remember? Do you know that part of that prayer is us saying to God, forgive me like I forgive others. You should probably say that to yourself every day. Forgive me like I forgive others. Throughout scripture, the Lord says he wants us to forgive like he does. When we pray, we're asking that that would be the attitude we have in forgiveness as well. So we are to confess our sin, and he will forgive us our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and we move on, right? John's going to focus on two primary issues throughout 1 John. First, he's going to focus on this, love one another. Now, we are all the way to chapter 5. How many times have you heard me talk about love one another? A lot, right? Because you would think I'd be here in five weeks instead of six months. But we here we are talking, love one another. Now, there's another theme that John loops back to. Remember I told you John writes symphonically, not linearly. He writes his letters like a song. So he's going to loop back around to subjects he's already talked about. The, the second warning that he has for us is a warning not to be deceived. Don't be deceived. We need to hear that more today than any other time in my life. Don't be deceived. The church, I know we think, we look at our nation, we think, man, our nation's super divided. Okay, well, let's back up a little bit. Our church is super divided. And we allow hearsay, gossip, and all kind of other things to divide us. And we think we know something, but we don't ever find out if what we know is actually what we know or not. And we stumble being deceived. Now, why do you think Satan would want to sow deception and... Um, fractions within the church. Why do you think he'd want to do that? Why would he want schism? Why would he want schismata? Why would he want divisions? And we look around at our world, certainly in our country, and we have a lot of divisions in our country, and the people who have the truth and the answer, the ability to love one another through and beyond all that, to unite together and provide for the world a definitive example are just as divided as the world is. 
struggle finding our place of unity together. The Bible tells us an easy way to stay unified. You want to know what it is? Keep your eyes on Christ. We move toward him. Paul wrote, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but this one thing I do, forgetting these things which lie behind me, I press on. Don't let him divide. John wrote this in the 90s AD. We are in 2021. And we need this message as, more, as, as much as they needed it then. My little children love one another. My little children do not be deceived. Don't allow the enemy to divide. Don't allow the enemy to... Anybody recognize that there's a strong push of the enemy to divide marriages? A strong push of the enemy to divide families. A strong push of the enemy to divide neighbors. And a strong push of the enemy to divide the body of Christ. We stay unified by staying focused on Christ. My eyes on him. He is my example. The point that I'm following, right? And so as John lays out what he has for us this morning, he's going to tell us how to hold fast to true faith. Not allow something to distract us. Not get off out in left field somewhere. Not driven crazy by all the things we can argue about. Has anybody in the last two years had an argument? All I got to do is say the word vaccine, and I will immediately irritate somebody. My wife says I have been unclear regarding the vaccine. Let me try to be as clear as I can be. You want the vaccine, get the vaccine. I already had COVID. I have been naturally vaccinated. According to a study in Israel, that natural vaccination is 13% stronger than any vaccine that they can give me currently. Now, if there's something that comes up later on or I find that that's not working out, I told you guys last week, the vaccine is not the mark of the beast. You, if you are concerned and you want the vaccine, get the vaccine. It's okay. If you come to church, you say, I really want to come to church, but I want to wear a mask. Please know, you come and wear a mask. It's okay. If you don't want to, come to church and don't wear a mask, but try to be sensitive of the people who do. It's okay. Why will we allow ourselves to be divided by a virus? That's just dumb. So we want unity, freedom for one another to make a decision for yourself based on the information that you understand and then do it free in Christ. The Lord did not say thou shalt not or thou shalt. So instead of dividing over that, put your eyes on Jesus, do what you think you need to do, and keep moving forward. 
This is how we will overcome. The Lord is laying out for us in 1 John chapter 5. We're going to pick it up in verse 6. The idea of how can we have true faith confirmed. I want to know that I know that I'm walking in Christ, that I am in him. And so he's going to give us this testimony of how we can stand firm in the reality of who Jesus Christ tells us that he is. Verse 6, he said, this is he, speaking of Jesus, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. Now, here's what you have to remember. In 1 John chapter 2, there was a division in the church at Ephesus. You remember? False teachers had gone out from them. John comforted the people by saying, if they've gone out from us, they were never of us. And part of the teaching of this group that had left was this idea. Now, if you, if you listen, you can still hear this lie perpetuated today. And that is that Jesus was just another guy born just like anybody else. When he came to John the Baptist to be baptized, the Christ consciousness took him over. The Christ consciousness empowered him for his life as he moved forward until he got to the cross. And at the cross, the Christ consciousness left and the man Jesus was crucified on the cross and then rose again with the Christ consciousness returning. That is heretical. That's not what the Bible teaches. But that was one of the things that had been going on in Ephesus at the time that John is teaching. So John says, here's what I want you to know. This is a testimony you got to hold to. Consider what these other guys have been saying and realize that Jesus Christ, he testified to us not only through the water, but through the water and the blood. What they're saying is Jesus Christ was one, the God-man. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, face-to-face -face with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled together with us. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says that he is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. There's never a time where there's some kind of separation in Christ. He is God in the flesh. That is orthodox faith. And so the scripture would lay out for us, look, this is he who came by water and blood. One Jesus from baptism through crucifixion, the same all the way through, no division, no loss of anything. These are the terminal points of Jesus' ministry. His earthly ministry begins at the baptism and culminates in his sacrifice at the cross, I would argue, for the resurrection, right? And so we see this is the picture that John is laying out. This is the point that he's talking about. The false teachers, they were teaching something other than this. So John's saying, look, I want you to understand the threefold witness. The witness, we're going to talk about it in a minute, the witness baptism, the witness at the cross, in the life of Christ, and the witness of the Holy Spirit. This is a threefold witness that he's going to discuss. In fact, he says there at the end of the verse, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. 
So in support of all the things that John's been talking about, the truth of Jesus, that he is the word of life and he is our eternal life, is all held together by these three points. For John, it says this spirit of truth is going to be the confirmation or the guarantee to the doctrine that John's talking about. John 14, 17, he says, Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. He's speaking to the disciples. He's saying the rest of the world does not have the Spirit. He's saying to the disciples, the Spirit is with you. He's alongside you. And Jesus, in John chapter 20, is going to do something. He's going to breathe on them. What's he going to say? Receive the Holy Spirit. He is with you, and he will be in you. He will be in you. John 16, 13 says, When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. The spirit of truth will confirm the witness that Jesus Christ brought of himself. You Basically, you're going to have the Trinitarian witness, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're all going to confirm that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. This is what he is driving home. This is what he wants us to understand. John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth that proceeds from the Father, he will do what? Bear witness of me. The Holy Spirit is the testimony of the truth of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit that enters into the life of a believer at salvation. That moment of justification, he enters into the life of the believer. Now we see in verse 7, it says, For there are three that testify. How many people have New King James? So yours has more than that, doesn't it? It does. It does. We're going to talk about that today. New King James goes on to say there are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three agree as one. And then you have the water, the blood, and the Spirit. These three agree as one. There's a comparison that comes out. And in your footnotes in the New King James, it will say that these are not found in the oldest manuscripts, right? And there are a lot of people, remember what I talked about, about division. There are a lot of people who teach based out of fear. You don't have to be afraid. I will tell you the truth about what the testimony of manuscripts is. And we don't have to be upset or freaked out about it. And hopefully I'll be able to tell you why as we consider it, as we work our way through. Erasmus is the fellow that was given the, the job, the role of putting together what we call today the Texas Receptus. Now, that's kind of an oversimplified argument. Texas Receptus is the set of documents through which we receive the King James and the New King James Bible. There are 20 different Texas Receptus uh, base manuscripts so usually we have to talk about which one are we talking about because there's there's a variety we there's a 
an idea that there's only one. There's, there's not just one. There's, there's a multiplicity of, of uh, uh, Texas Receptus manuscripts as well. When the King James people came to develop the King James Bible, which is probably my favorite, most beautiful to read Bible on the face of the earth. I still love King James. I'll never stop loving King James. When they came to do the King James Bible, we had seven Greek manuscripts. And they took those seven Greek manuscripts and they provided us a very faithful translation. And it's a good translation. Today, there are 5,280 manuscripts. Greek. Uh, that's, I'm not talking about Latin, Ethiopian, and every other. You can get upwards of 24,000 manuscripts if you count all the different uh, languages and translations that are out there. We have 5,280, and, and because we discovered 5,280, we discovered something else. And the seven manuscripts that were utilized in the King James Bible, there were none earlier than the 5th century, and the majority were in the 9th century. That means in the 980. That's a long time from Christ. Right? There was this guy, his name's hard to say, uh, so I'm not going to say it. He's German. <laughs> there was a German guy, and he was visiting a monastery. He was looking for text. He kept saying, man, I, there's so much stuff we haven't not dug up, right? You agree? A lot of stuff we haven't dug. He's like, man, I really wish I could find some ancient texts of the Bible, and he's at this monastery, and the story is that there were the monks were using this wad of paper, this this ream of paper. They'd just pull out these leaves, ancient leaves, and they'd crumble them up to start a fire. And so this fellow got to looking at it, and he said, "Well, that's a text. That's a biblical text." And he discovered Codex Sinaiticus which at the time he discovered it, is the oldest manuscript that we have. Now we have even older. We can, with some fragments of manuscripts, go all the way back close, I think, close to the 60s. Uh, that's about the time Mark was written. There is a room filled with manuscripts but much like we experience today in our world where we can't find people to work, there's no kids going through school who say, you know what I want to do? I want to study ancient biblical texts. So I'm going to learn ancient Greek and Hebrew, and I'm going to learn cuneiform text, and I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to decipher these things. I'm going to go to school for 100 years, and I'm going to graduate so I can sit in a room with a light and big, thick glasses and stare at ancient parchment all day. So there are 500,000, some say as many as a million, uncatalogued ancient texts that nobody's looked at yet. Now they're deteriorating. 
So there are people who are going around making, thank God for some technology, right, that are making uh, copies. They're taking pictures so that they can keep that digital image, and that digital image will be able to be studied long after we've lost those texts, provided that there will still be people who care about that study. I was, I had the benefit, one of the guys, um, he teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I had an opportunity to, to take his course, uh, not at Dallas Theological Seminary, I could not afford that, but uh, I was able to take his course um, online, and uh, I still have it. So if there are people who are interested after we're done, I want to look at some of that. I want to understand more about it. Um, I'd be happy to present it to you. It's a video course, and it comes with notes, so you can go through it together. But it's not short. So if you're in a rush, think you can do it in an hour. It's about an hour per video, and there's 38 videos. And probably a couple hundred pages, maybe, of of notes to go through. But it is fast. For me, it's fascinating. I love this stuff. So as we look at it, we see this discovery. Now, what's the importance of that discovery? It predates everything that we had, every single thing we had. The downside of that is now your Bible comes with footnotes. Now, there are people who say those footnotes are all evil. They're wicked. It's to make us think that we can't know what the Bible says. And I would say the exact opposite is true. Those footnotes are there so that you can know what the Bible says. So that you are given the information. In an age that, that enjoys and revels in the, in the freedom for you to make your decision. People ask me all the time, Jackie, what Bible should I use? I, I, only, I want to use the right Bible. They're all the right Bible. You want to know what the best Bible for you is? The one you'll read. If you're not going to read it, don't buy it. People ask me, Jackie, what Bible do you use? I use New King James. I use King James. I use NASB, ESV, and the NET. And I also have every possible translation there ever was, including the worst translation on earth, which is the Passion Translation. We'll get into that later. So I have all of this. And the point is, we want to utilize all that we have. Here's what you need to understand about translation. Please hear me. Language is fluid. You live in a pipe if you think there's such a thing as word-for-word -word translation. We can't even translate what we say word-for-word, -word, can we? Because we have an idea we're getting across, right? And we utilize language to get across that idea. And the same thing is true in Scripture. So faithful translators have wrestled for years. That's why when you sit down and you read NIV, ESV, King James Version, New King James Version, you sit down and you look at them and you go, well, this one says it different than that one. You're right. Because language is fluid. It's not precise. They're trying to get across the idea. And sometimes reading five versions together helps you understand what you're looking at. We live in a world full of fast food desire. But all fast food will get you is fat. 
I know. <laughs> so we have to be students of the word, don't we? And students of the word want to study and know. So I told you Erasmus, he put together the text that the Texas Receptus is from. His first edition of the Greek New Testament, the very first one he ever wrote, did not have 1 John 5, 7 like it reads in the King James Version or the New King James. The Catholic Church called him. Well, they didn't have phones. You guys, you guys get I'm going to speak loosely there's a, there, we, have the, we have the letters they wrote back and forth. And so they wrote a letter to Erasmus and say, how come you didn't put this in? And he said, well, because it's not in the Greek text. And so he called some of his buddies who were doing translation too. And he said, you guys see this? And they said, no, it's in some margins. Is anybody here writing their Bible? Okay, we're going to have to work on that. So everybody needs to start learning to write in their Bible. Everybody should bring a Bible. This should be covered with chicken scratch all over it to the point when you can't read it anymore, you get another one. You don't just buy one Bible for life. It is a book that you should be writing your ideas in and the things that, that are speaking to you from the word. Do you know that the ancient man did that as well? Only he couldn't go to Walmart to buy a Bible. So he wrote a hand copy somewhere in the dark under candlelight while the Romans were threatening to kill him. He wrote out a copy, and then he used that copy. And when he read it and he taught it, he wrote things in the margins. Have you ever wrote things in the margins of your Bible? So of the texts that contain this phrase, the majority of them are written in the margins. Somebody wrote in the margin, and there are three in heaven who agree. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is that, by the way, true? Yes, nobody's saying that's not true. Please, you're not hearing me say that's not true. What I am saying is John didn't write that. And we know it because we can look at a line of text dating a thousand years before what they used. And it's not in one until we get to the ninth century and then it moves from the margin to the text do you know why because they made handmade copies let's say you say i want a copy of the bible which would have been incredibly difficult to get in those days but you say i, I found somebody who has one i'm gonna go over to their house and i'm gonna make a copy there's no xerox you can't put it on, push a button, and it spits out all the pages, right? How do you do it? You sit down and write it out. Okay, so your homework this week. Write yourself a copy of the Bible. <laughs> and when you do it, I want to know how many times you have to erase something. Well, they didn't have erasers. Or you have to draw a line through something. Or you got to scribble something, or you got to write something above or something below. So this guy, when he goes through, he sees this in the margin. And he doesn't know. Why is that in the margin? I wonder if that's supposed to be in here. So he adds it. Not because he's trying to ruin everybody's life. He's trying to be a faithful student of God's word. 
Here's what we know about the biblical text. The biblical text from the ancient copies to today grew about 10%. It what? Now, some of you are saying, doesn't the Bible say, thou shalt not add or take away? Yes, it says that. That's what it says. I don't believe this is what it's talking about. When it talks about the text growing by 10%, this is how it grew. One guy goes and he picks up a copy, he's making a copy, and he says, oh, you know, we're, we're talking about Jesus, but it just says he. So I'm, I'm going to put Jesus there. Because we know it's Jesus he's talking about, and we haven't said the word Jesus in a while. That's in Mark. So they just wrote the word Jesus. Did it change anything? Did it, does it mean something different now? You know there's not one textual variant anywhere in the world that says Jesus was not God? That's not there. There's not one malevolent textual variant. You know what malevolent means? There's not one wicked or evil textual variant trying to deceive. Not one. But there are people using more pious language. You guys know what that means? So, so when you have, a, you have a copy and it says, so Jesus healed the man. And then the next guy who makes a copy goes, well, that's cool, but he's the Lord Jesus. So he says, and the Lord Jesus healed the man. And then the next guy comes along, you know, another generation later, and he says, the Lord Jesus Christ healed the man. You understand? So the text got longer. It did not get shorter. Things did not disappear. Nobody was cutting anything out, nor was there any ecclesiastical power over the word. There are some people who say, well, it was the church and the church is, well, in this case, we can see the church told Erasmus, what are you doing? His first New Testament did not have 1 John 5, 7, like it reads in the King James. His second one did. Because they took a Latin manuscript that had it, and they wrote it backwards into Greek, and they gave it to Erasmus, and they said, there, it's in the Greek. And so Erasmus said, okay. And he did the, the next version, version 2 of the New Testament. By the time he did version 3, Erasmus took it out again. But version 2 is what was utilized to create the King James Version and New King James. There's no wicked cabal. Nobody trying to take away the, the power of the word of God. And there is no one saying that the Bible is full of errors. We need to understand the doctrine of inerrancy. The doctrine of inerrancy states that everything God told us was true. It does not say that every word was always spelled the same. You are aware that there was no dictionary back then. Are you aware of that? Are you aware that in Genesis chapter 14, there's a city called Luz that didn't exist at the time of Genesis 14, but at the time of Moses, it did. So Moses said, hey, it's not called that old name anymore, so we're going to call it the new name. Do you guys know that happens? Does it erode your faith in the word of God? 
It shouldn't. God preserves his word full of truth to your lap today. And he places in your footnote any of those areas that we go, not sure. Not sure. This, and how do they tell us that? This is not in the oldest manuscript. Nothing to be afraid of. Do you know that Christianity and the Bible is the only holy book that does that? The great boast of the Quran in Islam is that there are no variations in Islam. The Quran is perfect. You, you know that's not true, right? That's not true. But you know how you get a perfect text? You burn all the old ones. Now, if you burn all the old ones, do you have the same faith in what you're looking at? This is the only copy, last one ever. 5,280 Greek manuscripts. All agree, 99%. There are guys, you guys, anybody ever heard of Barterman? Good. Don't go home and Google him. Bart Ehrman is a New Testament scholar at University of North Carolina. Anybody heard of University of North Carolina? He had a teacher. His teacher was Bruce Metzger. You can look that guy up. Bruce Metzger was a solid believer. His number one disciple in New Testament studies was Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman abandoned the faith when Bruce Metzger died. So Bart Ehrman now makes a living writing books about why you can't trust the Bible. And he'll say something like this. There are 400,000 textual variants in the New Testament. And there are only like 120,000 words. So we have no idea what any of the words are in the New Testament. And you might say, what? And there are those whose faith is shipwrecked as a result. Now listen. He's not lying. There's 400,000 textual variants. 99% cannot be translated into English. They make no difference. There are differences in spelling because there were no dictionaries. They are, they are this. It's, there's something called the movable new. This is the last boring thing I'll tell you, I promise. Everybody's like, what in the world is he talking about? I don't care about any of this stuff. I hope... I. I hope it gives you something to stand on so you can trust your Bible is authoritative word of God. I absolutely 100% believe that. It is the, the only thing we need. So there, there's something called a movable new. You guys know in English the difference between a and an, right? You ever been confused by it? I just know when it's wrong. A apple should be an apple, right? You put that in in there. I don't know why. Yeah, why, I, I know it because it starts with a vowel. Sorry. <laughs> I should have clarified that more. Well, Jackie, so what I don't understand is why, well, who made the rule? Why Why is it got to happen? So I don't, it doesn't matter. So you ha we have a and an. In Greek, you have a similar thing. It's called the movable new. Now, if I was to write to you, a apple, would you know what I meant? If I wrote an apple, 
Did I change the meaning? 99% of all textual variants in the Bible is that. There are three sections of scripture that are a question. Ending a mark, the woman caught in the act of adultery, and the one we're looking at today, 1 John 5, 7. That's it. Do any of those change any doctrine? No. And since we cannot definitively say absolutely because we don't have originals, we say in the footnote, it's not in the oldest. You decide. But it's there. It's either written in your footnote or written there in the verse. Okay, it's a long explanation about what that's about. The testimony is the Spirit confirming that Jesus is who he said he was at baptism, that Jesus is who he said he was in his death, burial, and resurrection at the cross. Okay, so this is the point that John's making. He wants us to focus on the testimony of the Spirit. So as we look, it says, here's the influence of the witness. Verse 8, the Spirit and the water and the blood. These three agree. The Holy Spirit, with the testimony at the baptism, with the testimony at the crucifixion, these all agree. They are all part of the witness that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he is. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Now John's going to write, and Peter's going to write, and the other apostles are going to write, that we have not followed cunningly devised fables, but we were all what? Eyewitnesses, which means this is not somebody who heard it from somebody, who heard it from somebody, who heard it from somebody, like all the gossip we have going around. That's not it. What is it? I was there. I was there. That's what John's saying. I, I, I'm an eyewitness. But if you, if you think the testimony of man is great, what about the testimony of God? The testimony that God has borne concerning his son. For whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. What is that testimony? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resides in the life of a believer and he will confirm. We'll, we'll read about that in Romans chapter 8 in just a moment. Whoever does not believe God has made God a liar. That's the problem with unbelief. Because he has not believed the testimony that God bore concerning his son. Jackie, what testimony? Matthew 3, 16 and 17. Matthew 3, 16 and 17. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, all right, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You're going to have that same voice again at the transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured before uh, the center, the central group of his disciples, basically his problem children, Peter James and John. He couldn't leave those guys behind because they always broke something. So he brought them with him. You think I'm crazy? That's the problem, children. The sons of thunder, James and John, and Peter. What do you say about them? Peter's always got his foot in his mouth. James and John want to call down fire from heaven and devour the. Yeah. 
Those are the guys there with him. Okay, so we have this. The Spirit descending like a dove. So the Holy Spirit, visually there, there was the Holy Spirit dropping down. And there was a voice from heaven declaring, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The testimony of the Lord. In John 8, verse 13, it says, So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. This was what they taught Old Testament law. You had to have two or three witnesses. We've heard that before, right? You have to have two or three witnesses. So he said, this is, this is just your testimony. Jesus answered, even if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. What's he saying? I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth. You don't like what I'm saying, but that doesn't make what I'm saying not true. I'm still saying the truth. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. The Bible declares he did not come this time to judge, right? He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. So he says, look, I, it, I, I don't come to judge anyone. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Now, Jesus is going to say later on what he means by that, because I and the Father are one. He goes on, he says, so, but I am the Father who sent me. He says, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now, do you honestly think that the heavens opened up, a voice came out of heaven, said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, with a huge crowd of people coming in repentance to be baptized by John the Baptist, and nobody ever told that story. The Pharisees aren't saying, you're not true. They're saying, we don't believe you, and we don't believe the stories we don't believe the things that people are saying now in the life of a believer the bible teaches us the holy spirit confirms in our life the truth of god's word romans 8 15 says for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you received the spirit of adoptions as sons by which we cry out abba father right the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit bears testimony within the life of a believer. The proof at the baptism. We look at John 19, verse 31. We talk about the day the, 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 uh, of his blood. It says, since it was the day of preparation... So the bodies would not remain on the cross till the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate their legs would be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness. What did he say? Let me read it again. He who saw it has borne witness. What kind of account is this? This eyewitness account. He who saw it bore witness. His testimony is true. 
He knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place in this, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, the scripture declares, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. And then the Roman centurion lifts up his eyes and says what? Surely this was the Son of God. And then the skies grew dark, the earth quaked, the temple was ripped from top to bottom, and the dead came out of the testimony is death, burial, and resurrection. The testimony of the Spirit bearing witness with the truth of what happened in his life. John's saying, look, you guys know all these things. They were not that far removed. We're in 90s. John's the last living apostle. He's going to die sometime after 95 AD. Everybody else, all of his other, all the other apostles are dead. He's the only one left. And he's reminding the people these things are true. Jesus Christ is what we need. We need him to empower our lives so that we can learn to love one another. So that we will not be deceived by the enemy who comes against us. So that we might focus on what God's word is calling out to. Because the problem of unbelief is we make God a liar. And the Bible says it is impossible for God to lie. The Lord speaks only truth. You remember when Jesus was at the well in Samaria? You know, he, he tells the disciples, we got to go to Samaria. And he, there, he's hanging out there at the well. And a woman comes afternoon to draw water. You remember the story? And she comes up, tries to strike. He strikes a conversation with her. She, she realizes he sounds like a holy man, so she tries to ask holy questions, like where should we worship? Jesus asked her a question, you remember? Well, go get your husband, and I'll tell you. And she said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, oh, you're speaking the truth. For you have had four husbands, and the one you're with right now is not your husband. Ooh, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Because God speaks truth. That day when she left, what did she leave with? The word of life. And eternal life. And then she brought others to Christ. And the Lord said to his disciples, look, the fields are white. It's ripe. The harvest is ready. Pray the Lord of the harvest, send out laborers to the field. Prayer still shouldn't change. We want to see laborers out in the field sharing the truth of the testimony of what Christ has done. Here's what he says in verse 11. This is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is where? In his son. This is the testimony God gave us. Eternal life is in his son. 
Jesus Christ is life eternal. So whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Jesus Christ is the dividing point. Now this is something that John has talked about over and over and over and over again. This is not something new. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What is it that Jesus Christ saves us from? He saves us from the wrath of God. Rightly deserved. We are, as everyone, children of wrath. For we were once dead in our trespasses and sin, but he, Christ, has made us alive together with him. He translates us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. In John 5.39, John wrote, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But the scriptures, it is they that bear witness of me. Where is eternal life? In the scriptures? The scriptures talk about it. What do they talk about? Eternal life is where? In Jesus Christ. John 6.40, By this we know... Our, for this is the will of my Father. <clears throat> Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Where's eternal life? In Jesus Christ. Who is it? He started in chapter 1, John, 1 John chapter 1, telling us what we need for life. What we need for everything is the word of life, Jesus Christ. He is the source of it all. It's a source of of the Spirit. He's a source of salvation. He's a source of our understanding. He is the bottom line. John 6, 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. He is declaring, you eat of this bread, you partake, you make Jesus Christ a part of you. And he brings eternal life. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. He is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Where's life? In Jesus Christ. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. There is no death in Christ. There is moving day. We move from here to there. But there is no death because in Christ there is eternal life. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus' high priestly prayer. John 20, 
30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you would have life, where? In his name. This is the testimony of God. The ministry of Christ began at his baptism. It culminated in his crucifixion and resurrection. It is testified to by the Spirit, which all who believe have residing within them, that Jesus Christ is the path of eternal life. And if you have Christ, you have that life. This is the testimony. God has given eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time we can gather. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Lord, we thank you for the truth we find therein. God, I pray that you would open our eyes, Lord. Help us to recognize and realize, to see the truth of who you are, what you have done, what your word declares. Lord, that we would want to be men and women, students of your word, for we are to search the scriptures because in them there is life, but the life they reveal is life in the Son. God, we pray that we might be those who would set their eyes on the prize. <coughs> we would not be distracted by all the things that want to distract us by all the things that want to divide us or by all the things that will get us moving hither, thither, and yon. Rather, Lord, may we be a people whose eyes are on the prize and the prize is Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. The prize is Him. As John finishes up this epistle as he lays this epistle out before us he's still reminding us look we want to be a people who love one another we want to be a people who beware deception and are standing on the faithful truth of God's word and we know that the source the thing the, the, the part that ties it all together is Jesus he's the key Lord, I pray that we would allow that key to unlock our heart. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would move in this place, that men and women who do not know you would come to know you, that your spirit would speak truth and understanding into the hearts of men and women, that they would be challenged to understand, study, and show themselves approved workmen of God rightly dividing the word of truth Lord I pray that we would set our eyes on you in these days that we would love one another and beware deception and keep moving forward and we will give you all the praise and the glory for it in Jesus name